0: And of course, a warm welcome to all of our members and our students. Uh, We have a treat in store. Some of you uh, have already had the privilege of hearing uh, Professor Kimmelman at one of his prior lectures uh, and others. This is uh, the first opportunity. Uh, You've seen his bio. I'm not going to read it at you. I'll just tell you that uh, he has a very um, fine reputation as a scholar and a speaker, and he is a professor of Classical Judaica at Brandeis University, has previously uh, taught at Amherst and has lectured at all the top places. Um, You didn't come to hear me. You came to hear him. He's going to speak tonight on Judaism and terrorism, certainly something that is uh, sadly very timely. Thank you very much. Uh, I, before I came here I called my mother since the topic is terrorism and she said what are you going to do tonight? I said you won't believe this but I'm being introduced by Einstein <laughs> she says you're pulling my leg I says I am but anyhow it's quite a privilege, right? I'm sure you get like that all the time the reason I mentioned to my mother because I figure it's all part of the theory of relativity Okay, our topic is a very delicate topic, and that's why I had an article published uh, and put in your hands, because we're going to deal with a very delicate issue, and not properly understood, it can lead to a lot of misunderstandings. One of the most proper ways of misunderstanding this material is a common uh, assumption nowadays that morally it's impossible to distinguish between freedom fighters and terrorists. And the real difference is one of ideology, meaning if the people are on your side, you call them freedom fighters. And if they oppose you, you call them what? Terrorists. And therefore, it's not a moral issue, but what? A political distinction. The other thing which provoked this whole thing is the amount of terrorism in the last maybe 15, 20 years, which has been legitimated on a moral basis. Uh, We have even uh, McVeigh, one of the great American terrorists came out of a religious tradition. We have attacks of people at abortion clinics who make the statement out of a religious tradition. We have terrorism becoming almost an ideology of extreme Islam. Some of the interesting moral problems which originally arose in this problem, when the first woman terrorist was in Israel, they asked the question, can a woman be a terrorist? Right? And the answer was, as long as she dresses modestly. Came out it actually was a fatwa to that occasion. Now, of course, in Islam, they have a fascinating phenomenon because they legitimated terrorism initially when it only was against the Jews. Now, the vast majority of people who are killed by terrorists are Muslims killing fellow Muslims, which exactly presents precisely the moral problem. Many people will adopt a tactic if they think it is only used against their enemies. Once the tactic, though, is legitimated, it easily gets turned against the people who used it. Because once you've legitimated a tactic, then the tactic becomes legitimate. And targets become secondary. So our question this evening is, how does Judaism deal with this problem? So if I gave this lecture 25 years ago, people would say it's an absurd topic. Who ever heard of anybody legitimating terrorism from the sources of Judaism? But as far as that goes... Who ever heard of people legitimating terrorism from the sources of Christianity? And as far as that goes, up to fifty years ago, we rarely heard anybody legitimating terrorism from the sources of Islam. In fact, one of the popular propagandistic aspects of Islam is to say Islam means peace. Some people spell it with an e, some people spell it with an i, right? But how you spell it is still so it means peace, on the assumption that the word Islam comes from the word Salom, which comes from the word Shalom. When actuality, Islam comes from the Hebrew Hishlim. And Hishlim means to hand over. So what is Islam? That which is handed over, meaning tradition, mesorah. So Islam really etymologically means the authentic tradition. Therefore, the word Islam actually functions in the Muslim world the, word, the way the word kabanga Functions in the Jewish world. Kabbalah means tradition. And those who advocate it claim they are the legacy of the true tradition. Even Madonna apparently believes in that. Right? That's not funny. What was Madonna before she was famous? She was a pre-Madonna. And things therefore haven't really changed. Okay. So now we want to deal with the questions of terrorism. Now if I were trying to legitimate terrorism, and the reason I'm interested in this problem is because two elements have tried to legitimate a possible terrorist perspective in Judaism. The first was the case of Baruch Goldstein who killed a bunch, some people said up to 28 Muslims, praying in a mosque. And the reason he did this, legitimately speaking, is it was right before Purim and he argued they had planned a case of slaughtering the Jews of the community. And what was his act? was a preemptive act. The second is the case of Rabin. Rabin was assassinated. The person who was assassinated, by the way, should know, he never confessed to the crime, although I don't know if there's much doubt about it. Nonetheless, the argument of those who defended him, even if he did not defend himself this way, was that Rabin was on the verge of handing over a major part of the land of Israel to the enemy, and this was to prevent it. And therefore Rabin, so the argument goes, was threatening the security of the State of Israel and had the status of a Rodaif. A Rodaif means an active assailant. And according to traditional Tammuric law, if a person comes to kill you, you can forestall it by killing him first. Now, the question is to what degree are these definitions legitimate? And I was very much bothered by this problem to ask myself the question could a person legitimate a so called terrorist position from the sources of Judaism, as Christians and Muslims have done from their own sources? And if you were to do so, what sources would you look to? And secondly, how would you legitimate those sources? So, what we always do in Judaism is go back to the Torah and you look for examples. Now, follow closely what I'm going to say. Because not everything in the Torah is a legitimate activity. In other words, we Jews read our Torah through the Talmud. We don't read our Torah straight. We take it on the rocks. Okay? And, meaning, historically speaking, it is the Torah as mediated through the Talmud which becomes precedent-setting in Judaism. So you just can't quote the Bible and say, so-and-so in the Bible did this, therefore we should do this. For example, Samson married Delilah. When did the last time you heard a sermon that all men, Jewish men, should marry Philistine women? Right? Nobody says that, right? Now, only 2,500 2, years ago, many of us had good neighbors. We were Moabites, Jebusites, Canaanites, right? Now we don't have any of those neighbors, but many of us still have neighbors who are Philistines. But they are probably not the biological descendants of the original Philistines. So nobody says you're supposed to marry a Philistine, Right? Other people think you can't use Samson as an example because he really was a comedian. What's the evidence he was a comedian? He brought the house down. Okay? But neither of these are examples or precedent-setting in moral theory. Okay, so my question is, how are those examples, which could be used to legitimate a so-called terrorist position, understood in the Jewish tradition? We have two primary examples of this. The first is an example of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moses himself walks out of the palace, sees a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian. What does he do? He takes the law into his own hands and kills the Egyptian. This is not this is an example of vigilante justice. And once you legitimate vigilante justice, are you not on the slope which would end up legitimating what? Terrorism, where the individual is the source of the moral judgment decides that something is wrong and does what? And decides to execute. That's what we mean by vigilante justice. That is, the individual themselves takes the law into his own hands. Now, a superb example of that is what? Is Moses. Did he not take the law into his own hands? Did he not kill the Egyptian? Therefore, that is not an example of vigilante justice. Now, normally, most traditions would do what? They would glorify Moses, because what did he do? He killed a taskmaster who was beating up on a Hebrew. Not only that, he abandoned a tradition of becoming, what, a prince? And decides, what, to throw in lot with the Jewish people. So you would think, in the Jewish tradition, this act would be glorified. Not only glorified, and precedent-setting. And people would say, what? Do as Moses did. And one could do that based upon the biblical grounds alone. Because in the biblical story... Not only does he get away with it, he flees to Midian and later becomes what? The father of his people. So you could think maybe it was that act of killing the Egyptian which legitimated. Now it's not unusual, by the way, in slave rebellions or in protests against government, actually the man who creates the most violence and has the most blood on his hands becomes what? The leader of the new state. We've seen that happen everywhere. In fact, frequently it happens more often than not. Because he has the most violence and blood on his hands, he becomes what? The moral exemplar of the one who stands by his people and protests against it. Therefore what? Glorified by his people. So the question is, how is the act of Moses understood in the Talmud itself? So the Talmud says the following. Oh, could I get a glass of water? I'm sorry. Uh, by the way, that wasn't a quotation from the Talmud. Right? Yeah. Although there are many in the Talmud who did do such things. But that wasn't precedent setting. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Okay. You got a whole bottle. Boy. Huh? Uh, it all started here. I'll never get off the bottle once I leave here, but... That's great. Thanks. Okay, now, so did Moses' act become precedent-setting? So one of the most fantastic midrashim is called the Midrash of Petirat Moshe. It's a story about the death of Moses, and Moses is protesting against the divine decree which prevents him from entering to the land of Israel. And he gets an argument with God of why he should let him in. And finally God says to him, the reason I'm not going to let you in is because you killed that Egyptian. To which Moses says, what kind of joke is that? You killed all the firstborn of Egypt. Who oh, really, chutzpah, if you talk that way, or hutzman, not in sexist language, right? You killed all the firstborn of Egypt. All I did was what? Kill one Egyptian. To which God answers him and says, yes, but I can slay and revive. Can you slay and revive? And of course Moses says what? No. And since you cannot give life, according to this what? You cannot take life. And that's one of the most amazing midrashim that we have in our all literature. There's a great discussion in the Jewish tradition why, jo- why Moses is not allowed to the land of Israel. Over 12 different reasons are given. For, well, so, But this midrash apparently rejected all those traditional reasons. says No, there was a moral fault with Moses. What was his moral fault? He slayed the Egyptian. So then I began to look at the text which asked the question, well, what happened there? How do they discuss it? So if you look at almost all of the early midrashim on this subject, they try to legitimate the act of Moses, and I say legitimate means to make legal. That's what legitimate means, to make legal. So the first question is, it says in the Bible, he looked to the right and to the left and seeing no one there. Now, no one is no ish, no man there. To which the Midrash says, why does it say no one? Why does it say no man? Oh, because he looked to the right and the left. you know why? Because he convened a court of angels. And there was a court of angels of three. And he asked them, should this man be slain or not? And they said, he may be slain. So what did he do? He slew him. According to the second theory, he slew him only with the divine name. That is, the instrument of killing, was he used a divine name like a whammy, and that killed him. The third is that he slew him with his fist. And the fourth theory is that before he could slew, before he could slay him, he checked into his progeny to check if any future righteous people would ever emerge out of this man's loins. Not seeing any potential righteous people, what did he do? The man has no saving grace and got rid of him. Those are your four interpretations in the Midrash. So I asked myself, why would anybody concoct such an interpretation? Why not say he looked to the right and to the left? Why say he convened a court of angels? And who cares if he killed them with a fist? And why use the divine name? And why check into his progeny after all? How much can you percheck? And I began to think about this and say, all these interpretations have something in common. They're all either trying to legitimate the act of Moses or to remove it as precedent setting. Let's look at each one of the four. The first is, by convening a court of angels, what have they made? Not Moses operating on his own as vigilante justice, but they've turned him into an expression of judicial procedure. By saying that he killed the man with the fist is an interesting thing, because in Jewish law, to be accused of premeditated murder, you have to use a means which is normally lethal. Normally, you hit a person with a fist, right? He doesn't what? Die. So if I take a pea shooter and shoot it at you, and suddenly you have a heart attack, you may die because of the pea shooter, but nobody will accuse me of what? Of premeditated murder. Of course, unless I know you have a weak heart, or you're afraid of peas. Either one. Okay, which sometimes happens? Especially with these iPods. Okay, Now, and the third one, and the third thing, oh, by I say with a fist. In New York State, for example, if you're a professional boxer, I don't know what the law is in California, but in New York, if you're a professional boxer, and you hit somebody with your fist, and you kill him, it's called what? Premeditated murder, because you should know that. But a normal person would not be considered stuff. His fists are not lethal weapons. The fourth consideration is that he doesn't have righteous progeny. Why make such a statement? Well, whatever its function is, it removes it from normal human behavior. Because nobody else is what? Could check into a person's potential gene pool and say, well, 200 years down the line, you wouldn't have what? Righteous progeny. So the function of this is to remove it as precedent setting in Jewish law and allow Moses to have pulled it off, but prevents anybody in the future from saying what? I'm going to do as Moses did. Which is quite amazing, because instead of glorifying the act of Moses, what does that tradition do? Try to bring it into the categories of use of law, or to remove it as a moral precedent for subsequent Jewish behavior. Even though the act itself may have been glorified, may have been although it's not in the Bible by the way comments doesn't really glorify it, but nonetheless, it could have become precedent-setting because it's associated with Moses, as other acts of Moses become precedent-setting. Okay? So what the function is, the first discussion is, it removes it from the realm of precedent setting. Good. Now if you take the text in front of you, I'm going to quote a verse from Isaiah, which if you're in front of him, page 321, the second page. This is quite an amazing verse. It's found in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 59. Mm Mm-hmm. It says, The Lord saw and was displeased that there was no redress. He saw that there was no man. So the phrase, there was no man? He gazed, but no one intervened. Then his own arm won him triumph. His victorious right hand supported him. He clothed himself with garments of retribution, wrapped himself in zeal as in a robe. Who are we describing? God. Now, one of, the function, one of the major expressions of Jewish ethics is called imitatio dei. That is, if God does it, we can do it. God is called merciful, we should be merciful. God is called gracious, we should be gracious. God is called long-suffering, we should be long-suffering. So then why should I not say, and God is called zealous, therefore what? We should be zealous following the same procedure. To which the Midrash says, God is called baal khema which literally translated means a master of anger. So they say, the reason God can get angry is that God is always in control of his anger. But since human beings, when they get angry, the more angry they get, the less they exercise control. So fascinating what the Jewish tradition was, all the positive qualities of God are subject to human emulation, like mercy, graciousness, extending long-suffering. But those qualities in which we lose control of ourselves, for example, anger, are not subject. God is unique, because God can use anger only in an educational sense. Most of us who start using anger, we may initiate educationally, but we get so involved before you know what. Rather than being in control of the anger, the anger rapidly takes control of ourselves. Therefore, God is called a Baal Chema. I cite this. Because in another Jewish religious tradition, the same verse from Isaiah could have been used as metatio dei. Look at the verse. He saw there was no man. He gazed, but no one intervened. Just like whom? It almost sounds identical to whose situation? Moses. It could easily have said, oh my God. Well, they wouldn't say that. If God did it, then what? Then clearly what? Moses could have done it. And Moses was acting divine-like and emulating the divine. That's what I would have expected. No. The tradition quotes this verse and says, no, this is a divine exclusive, not human. Why? Because God can control his anger and use it educationally. And we get anger, the tendency is what? To be controlled and not to be in control. Okay? So since zeal is prone to go amok, right? human beings, according to this, cannot be trusted with it. They are not authorized to imitate God in a sense. And therefore, in one sense, zealotry as a way of imitating the divine, was taken out. Okay? Now, besides that, the tradition went out of its way to say that the Egyptian that Moses slew was guilty. They made him guilty of two grounds. One was guilty of adultery. Fascinating phenomenon. In other words, why was he beating that Hebrew? Because that Hebrew had found out that the Egyptian had been with his wife the night before. You get it? So the Hebrew was doing what? Had attacked him. Now he was killing him to make sure that what? It wouldn't be found out that he committed adultery. Almost sounds like the American government. Until the Republicans got in. Okay? Okay. Then, and the second thing they accuse him of, that the Egyptian was on the verge of killing the Hebrew. Now that's interesting. Why? Because in Jewish law, if I see A trying to kill B, and I'm standing there, I have an obligation. To intervene to stop a, unless my intervention would endanger my life. I have no obligation to lay down my life. But I have an obligation to save a person's life if it doesn't cost a life. If it costs a life to save a life, then what? I still lose a life. And in Jewish law, my life is not worth no less than your life or no more than your life. Therefore, I'm not never obliged to lay down my life to save your life. Because if all lives are of equal value, then who am I to decide which life is more valuable than another? Now when I cannot decide whose life is more valuable, I cannot decide that your life is more valuable than mine, nor can I decide that my life is what? More valuable than yours. But if A is trying to kill B, and I can intervene without being killed, and I can stop B from being killed, then I'm morally obliged to stop whom? Stop A. Okay. So the second way they legitimated it was they argued that the Egyptian taskmaster was beating up on this Hebrew because he had caught him of adultery and therefore wanted to silence him. How do you silence the man? By killing him. What was Moses doing? Moses was intervening to save the life of the Hebrew who was being beaten up. Well, everybody agrees that if A is trying to kill B, then it is meritorious for C to do what? To intervene to save B. So again, therefore, it was not a matter of taking the law into your own hands. It's what? What all Jews are obliged to do is to save another human life as long as it doesn't cost them their life to save a life. Repeat that again. Many moral traditions think it is morally praiseworthy to sacrifice a life from another. But Judaism holds that all life is sacred, even mine and yours. So if my life is sacred and your life is sacred, I have no right to forego your life any more than right to forego whose life? Mine? Okay? Now look at the page over on the next side. Okay? The second example, which was used, is the cave of Pinchas. I don't know if you know the case of Pinchas, but Pinchas is considered the great zealot in the Jewish tradition. The word kanai is first applied to Pinchas. What did Pinchas do? There was a case of a man called a woman called Cosby, and a man called Zimri, and they apparently were fornicating in the sanctuary. And this woman Cosby was a Midianite, and Moses, who was then the leader, could not intervene. Now, why could he not intervene? Because he was what is called in Hebrew a nogleibedavar. He was an interested party. What do you mean he was an interested party? Well, he also had married a. Midnight. So Zimri was saying, what, your wife is permissible and what, mine isn't? Of course it wasn't a wife. But as soon as you do any act as a leader which a bit compromises your moral situation, you can guarantee that the enemies will exploit the compromise of your situation and while you may have compromised 10%, they'll assume you compromised what? 90%. Okay? So therefore Moses didn't know what to do because if he acted people would say, well, He's asking, he's super, it's called super, 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 superogatory. He's asking for privileges, he doesn't give others. So this man called Pinchas, who is a member of the priesthood, comes in, and since he catches him in flagrant, what does he do? He kills them. Afterwards it says that God extended his covenant of shalom, which probably here means well-being, not so much peace, but it's a statement of protection. Now the question is, how is this case? where a man took the law into his own hands. He killed this man and this woman. And his own life wasn't threatened, nor was anybody's else life threatened. And not only that, God himself says, I extend to you, my covenant or agreement of well-being. So you would think, if God okays it, then clearly what? The Talmudic rabbis were okay it. It's amazing, if you look at the two Talmuds, the Roshami and the Bavli, they both express disapproval of this act. And they say, had Pinchas come to us, we would have said what? You can't do it. And not only that, they said, had God not intervened, we would have excommunicated you. They would have excommunicated him, unless what? But God intervened. Which means, what are they saying? On a moral, human level, such an act was impermissible. And then they went a third step. They said, if it turned out that Zimri was not being killed by Pinchas, but had suddenly turned around and taken the spear and given it to Pinchas instead, and Pinchas got killed, it would be an act of self-defense. And so they say, had he not been killed, but suddenly, you know, some type of um, uh, maneuver, was not killed, grabbed the sword, and give it back to Pinchas, then he would not, would not be subject to a trial in a court of law because it would be a legitimate expression of what? Self-defense. Now that is amazing. That means the act of Pinchas is totally removed from what I call human precedent. And you cannot say, I'm acting like Pinchas. Nonetheless, God okayed it. So the question is why? Because here you have a difference between rabbinic opinion And divine opinion. How did that take place? So one way of explaining it is an interesting category, which is normally not mentioned in public. But I'll mention it on the assumption that you people can keep a secret. Or if you can't, at least the people you tell can. And that is called the category of Avera Lishma. Avera Lishma. Avera is a sin. Lishma means to do something without an ulterior motive. So I'm going to translate in English as idealistic transgression. That is, what you did was wrong, but we consider the intention involved, and if you had pure motives, that could override some degree of the wrongness of the act. I emphasize this because it's probably no more dangerous moral position than to judge an act by the intention rather than by the deed. Nonetheless, such a category exists in Jewish ethical reflection, and therefore we should be aware of it. And it's called again, avera Lishma, which I'm translating as an idealistic transgression. It operates on the individual level, what Horaat Sha'a operates on the communal level. Horaat shah means it allows the court to supersede a specific legal ruling because of the necessity of the moment. But that's different when an institution does so. An individual who does so is called Avera Geshma. Which, by the way, I say is a very dangerous doctrine because it argues for the morality of an act based upon intention. Okay? Now, that being the case, how do you ascertain intention? So the first criterion of any ascertainment of intention in Judaism is that the person who commits the act receives no benefit from the act. What he's not allowed to do is say, well, I really mean this, even though what? I gain this. As soon as you receive benefit from the act, then it's automatically disqualified as an idealistic transgression. Now, what is benefit? Benefit could be clearly in monetary benefit, political benefit, social benefit. But the Talmud goes one step further. If you committed a transgression against an individual, that you previously had a conflict with him, even though the act may be perceived as an idealistic transgression, emotionally you may be trying to do what? Is square accounts. And therefore there could be a benefit, what is called a feeling of vindictiveness. Oh, clearly what I did was right. But why did I think it was right? Because I had it in for you, suddenly the opportunity arose where I could get back with you under the category of what? Avera So if there's any benefit which accrues to the individual who does a criminal act, but it's overcome by intention, there can be no benefit on the material level and no benefit on the emotional level, which means it's impossible for the human being to ascertain totally. Now, who is it limited to? We have several examples in our tradition which are called Avera Rishma. The first example are the daughters of Lot, fantastic story the book of Genesis is Saddam sto- and Gomorrah are destroyed and Lot flees with his daughters, right? Now he doesn't flee with his wife stays behind she becomes a pillar of the community I guess right? You know if you take you know, these things with a grain of salt Boy, the depth of the groan, gosh I didn't realize such depth in this place Okay now Anyhow, the, the daughters of Lot apparently perceive this way almost all traditional interpretation takes it that not only happened to Sodom, but it was a worldwide conflagration. And the tradition understands the daughters of Lot as very morally responsible people. They ask themselves a question if we are the lone survivors of humanity, do we have a moral obligation to what? To maintain the human line. It's a fantastic question. Well, the only person to maintain it is with what? Their father. Now, according to the Talmud, it's beautiful. They got their father drunk. Which means the argument goes what? Had they made this argument to their father on moral, rational grounds, he never would have agreed. Once you get him a little drunk, who knows? So the father does not come out as the moral, responsible being, but who? His daughters. And one night the older slept with him, and the next night the other. And thus they hoped they were doing What? maintaining the human race interesting the talmud does not condemn the father for the first night but does say he should have been more careful the second night okay fascinating but the interesting thing is called an avirah lishma because these were two girls who probably what would much rather have their husbands who remained in Sodom than their own father but they felt morally responsible to maintain the human line so what did they do they got their father drunk and had relationships. Okay? This is called, again, an avirat lishma, because they're not trying to square accounts, but they're they're committing what's a sin? The sinning of incest. Okay? The second example is used of the case of Ya'el. Ya'el is found in the book of Judges, and she apparently invites the enemy general Sisra into her tent. And she has sexual relations with him in order to weaken him. This is, again, another example is given called Avera Hashma. Because Devorah, when she praises Yael, she says, Tevorach Minashim. May she be more blessed than women. And the Talmud says, which women are we talking about? The matriarchs. Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. And why? Because she was willing to risk herself. She brought the general in. You could have killed her. Right? And through sexual relations, what did she do? She weakened him, and finally did away with him. So they use it as another example of Avera Lishma. Now, it's interesting, she was a non-Jewish woman. And therefore, she was not attacked. Had she been a Jewish woman who could benefit from that, maybe it's different, I don't know. The third example they give is the case of Esther, who married whom? Achash Virosh. Anyhow, what is fascinating about these three cases is, they all deal with what? Women. The offense is always what? Sexual. What we don't have, and I searched everywhere I could find, maybe I didn't find it, but as far as I could see, we have no example in the Jewish tradition where murder is legitimated as an avirashma. Now, normally in the Jewish tradition, there are three cardinal sins. The cardinal sins are murder, shfichut adultery and incest, and public idolatry. Now, what do I mean by three cardinal sins? These are the sins... That it's better to give up your life than commit. So if I walk up to you and say, either you kill him or I'll kill you, you can't say what? I'll kill him to save my life, right? Or I walk up to you and say, either you rape this married woman or I'll kill you. You also can not use that as what? Wait. Or, a, or a, close, a public act of idolatry. A public act of idolatry means there are at least 10 Jews who see you do it. If it's less than that, or only non-Jews, then it's considered an act of duress. And you know what? You wouldn't be called upon to give up your life. So fascinating enough, all these cases of, of Averat lishma, of a diadilistic transgression, the greatest extent is in sexual crimes, but not what? Never murder. Apparently, murder in Judaism is such a heinous crime that there's no way of legitimating it. Just no way of doing it. No way of legitimating it at all. The next category, in which allows for killing, is called a rhodaif, which I alluded to before. I now want to develop. A rodaf, I would translate in English as an active assailant. Watch my translation. An active assailant. A rhodaif means somebody is coming at you to kill you. He's not a potential assailant. He is an active assailant. Now, to define the phrase rhodaif, we need two, two phrases. One is it's life-threatening. Two, it is imminent. You need both, life-threatening and imminent. If they're both there, then what can you try to do? Kill the guy rather than what? Get killed. That assumes because there is no time to do anything else. If you had time and the leisure to go to court or to call a policeman, then you would do so. So the phrase rodeif means two things. It is life-threatening, and it is imminent. And the definition of imminence is, if you don't stop him, he's going to do what? Kill you, and there's no time. And this criterion of imminence is extraordinarily important. The only reason, in Judaism that is, that you have a right to take the law into your own hands is because there's no alternative of going to the legal system. You don't have the time. Okay. If you have both those elements, that the A is threatening your life, and it's imminent, meaning at that moment you don't do something, you could end up losing your life, then what can you do? You can kill him. Even then, according to Jewish law, if you have the capacity or the capability of injuring him without killing, then you should do so. So, for example, if you're a trained marksman, right, and he comes out with your gun, and you, by virtue of your training, could easily, let's say, shoot at his leg, and you shoot at his heart, you could be held responsible. But if you're not trained and you're scared like anybody else, and what we say, a reasonable person in that situation would do what? He's gonna shoot any way he can, fine. It would depend upon your training. What would a person in that situation normally be held responsible for, okay? But in that case, if a person's coming at you, you can kill him. Now, one of the reasons you can kill him is not only to save your life, but in legal terminology, is to prevent the other guy from becoming a murderer. But you killed him. No, but you're not a murderer, you know why? Because your act is what? Self-defense. You are saving a life, it turns out to be yours. But what follows, in Judaism, it's as important to save your life as to save somebody else's life. One of the great ideas in Judaism, right? My life is as valuable as yours, which means your life is as valuable as mine. And I can't play God. I can't decide that you are more valuable than me. Just like I can't decide what? That I am more valuable than you. That's not my decision on life. That's a divine prerogative, never a human prerogative. Okay? Now look at the first page. If you look at the bottom of the fourth page, 36. I'm going to focus on this issue between terrorism and freedom fighting. In the discussion of issues in the Middle East... There's a whole series of pundits who love to perceive moral symmetry. And therefore, they consider themselves fair if they can find evil on both sides. In fact, we just had a recent movie on this subject. In which the ideology of moral symmetry, how do you show you're concerned with morality? By not taking sides. And if you find evil on one side, you should find at least a smidgen of evil what on the other side. Even in a case like Munich. Okay? So you will see people say, well, the Stern gang is no worse than or no better than Arafat. Of course, Arafat kills hundreds, he killed one, and they'll tell you the bombing of the King David Hotel. So I began to investigate then and say, to what degree is that argument holds some weight? So there's a famous book called The Deed, by the way, it appears both in English and Hebrew. And in there, there's the confessions of a member of the Stern gang, specifically of the one who killed Lord Moyn who was the British Minister of State in the Middle East. So look at bottom page 36. It's, it's a, I want to, I'm quoting to you because it's a fantastic story. In November 1944, Lord Moyne, British Minister of State in the Middle East, was assassinated in Cairo by two members of the stern gang. That is true. They don't deny it. Okay? One of the assailants, everybody sees the last line? Described his capture by an Egyptian policeman as follows. We were being followed by the constable. My comrade was behind me. I saw the constable approach him. I would have been able to kill the constable easily. Constable means policeman in English. But I contented myself with shooting several times in the air. I saw my comrade fall off his bicycle. The constable was almost upon him. Again, I could have eliminated the constable with a single bullet but I did not. Then I was caught. Now this is an amazing story because this man had just murdered what? Lord Moyne. The reason he had murdered Lord Moyne is that Lord Moyne played a key role in preventing what he thought the Jews deserved in the land of Israel. So you normally think, if you killed Lord Moyne and now I'm escaping, I have a right to kill what? A policeman, right? He says, no, the policeman in my position was not guilty of what? Lord Moyne was involved in instrument policy, which was preventing, which is true of course, Jews from landing in the land of Israel in 1944. The number of Jews had actually been turned back and went back up to Italy, and then through trains ended up in Auschwitz. We know about those stories. So he said, we got to kill these people, because these people are bringing about what? Okay? Now, in Jewish law, he would not be allowed to do so, unless there's some degree of imminence. Also, Lord Moyne was specifically involved. Nonetheless, I would call him a freedom fighter. I would not call him a terrorist. And what distinction am I able to make? Indiscriminate killing calls you what? A terrorist. A freedom fighter, which I'm not legitimating, but I use the thing, right? I call it an idealistic transgression. You 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 targeted the person, only this individual, but you go out of your way to make sure what? Or at least to minimize the death of what you perceive to be innocent people. The last thing you do is involve yourself in indiscriminate killing. Who did he focus upon? Lord Moyne. We have another case when they focused upon British military officials in Jerusalem. We have no case where there's indiscriminate killing of what? Of women and children, except in one farm, of which to this day we don't know exactly what happened. Or what the intentions of people did, even though we know many that innocent people got killed. Okay? Now, in light of that, I want to quote Maimonides. Look at page 36. Look what Maimonides says page 36, about three paragraphs down, the indented paragraph. He says, Although there are worse crimes than bloodshed, although he doesn't say what they are, if one has committed this crime, what crime? Bloodshed. He is deemed wholly wicked. Now look at this line. And all the meritorious acts he has performed during his lifetime cannot outweigh this crime or save him from judgment. We just had a case like this in California, which you're all aware of. But it's a remarkable statement. In other words, murder is so heinous, we don't say, well, you killed one guy, but you did a thousand good deeds. One thousand good deeds, killing one person. Well, what? Maybe what? Well, you could argue the case, get it? comes on my mind, so not to tell you, in Judaism, murder is so heinous, there's no number, of good deeds, which does what? Which compensates. Because once a life is taken, what can you never do? Never bring it back again. Which shows you why in Judaism, of all the crimes, one crime stands above every other crime. And that is murder. Because in Judaism, when you murder a human being, you also murder the image of God. In fact, the expression for murder in classical rabbinic parlance is mimma'et et ha You diminish... The image or the presence of the king. Who's the king? Right? So, for example, the story is told that there were two twins. One went into a life of crime and one went into politics. Of course, this story was told when they were distinct fields. (laughs) Anyhow, the one who went into a life of crime got caught for murder. The one who went to the life of politics became the head of the city, actually the king. Well, the one who went to the life of crime got caught for murder and they hung him in the public square. Everybody said, who's hung there? Well, they got two brothers, identical twins, they said whom? The king is hung. This is the explanation why the rabbis say in the book of Deuteronomy that when you hang a person, you must bring down his body before nightfall. Why? Because God and man are like what? Identical twins. When you hang a human being, you're just like what? You're hanging. So if you look upon this, in Judaism, murder is not only a social and economic crime, or even a human crime, it's also a theological crime. You put all the two together. And Maimonides makes this point. Now, to make this point even clearer, look at the final source, which we'll conclude with. On this difference between a freedom fighter and a terrorist. I say lies in drawing the moral distinction between those who can and who cannot be killed. Even a freedom fighter, by the standards we use, would not be legitimate. That is, if you're killing somebody without due procedure, because you're taking the law into your own hands. But just because you've removed one moral distinction, doesn't mean you should remove all moral distinctions. So the following statement is found in the Midrash. It says that on the judgment day, see the indented part? On the judgment day, if the tribes charge Esau with persecuting his brother, because Esau persecuted whom? Jacob. Esau will retort, what do you want from me? Didn't you persecute Joseph, your brother? You know better than me. But when confronted by the charge from Joseph, that if Joseph brings the charge, it's different than his brother's. Esau will have no answer. For Joseph will anticipate Esau's defense by saying, If you claim that Jacob did you evil, my brothers also paid me evil. But I did what? Requited them with good. This is a fantastic distinction because it means, ultimately, there is no difference between ends and goals. We will frequently legitimate an act by saying, The end justifies the means but that is really a miscalculation because there are no ends. Because as soon as you reach any end, that end now becomes a means for the next step. So let's say, for example, you're going from New York to Chicago. What's your goal? Chicago. Then you get to Chicago and decide to go where? To Denver. Then you get to Denver and decide to go where? Los Angeles. Then you decide to do what? Go to what? Balboa Beach, let's say. So and the first stage, Chicago was what? An end. Becomes what? A means. And Denver was what? An end. Became what? A means. And even Los Angeles can become a means, which is not so easy nowadays, right? And the real end is only what? Newport Beach, as we all know. Okay? My point being is that the mistake between ends and means means you've limited perception. What perceived as now as an end, once is achieved, becomes what? A means. Therefore, there really is no distinction between ends and means. So therefore, if the means are not justified, then the end cannot what? Justify the means, because in actuality, means and end are entangled so that you have to conceive the ends as means in embryo. Isn't that a nice poem? It comes from Ferdinand Lasalle, a Jewish playwright, and appears at the very end of the page. It says, look at this, and I wish to kind of summarize, I think, the whole Jewish perspective. Point not the goal until you plot the course. For ends and means to man are entangled so that different means, quite different aims and force. So what do you got to do? Conceive the means as ends and embryo. Thank you.